Hi, welcome to another installment of the podcast, Working Drummer. Today we've got Mark Beckett. Mark has experience beyond his years, and he's not afraid to share it. Uh, he also shares the drum throne with Eddie Bears on the Grand Old Opry, which is really cool. To find out more information about this podcast and others, including some pictures we've posted, go to workingdrummer.net and visit us on Facebook. Here is Mark Beckett. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. To, yeah, to this be is my here. first one, so I'll try not to be overly nervous. <laughs> Just, <laughs> dude, no, I mean, uh, honestly, of all the guys that I've talked to so far, you're the one I know the least about. I mean, I know from Don what some of the things that you do, and I know, I mean, just in general, uh, people that know you, some of the things that you do, but I personally don't know you. I mean, I don't even know if we've actually met, like, in person, like, in, in formally, whatever. No, I, mean. I don't think so. Um, so, I mean, I, but, uh, so I just kind of want to go through what you're doing now. Okay. What led up to today. Um, okay kind of what got you interested in, in drumming and you know this is about the working drummer this is about okay. the player that makes their living right. and kind of I just love the stories that lead up to okay why you're doing what you're doing so okay. so um, I don't know I just kind of like to start with like what's going on what's keeping you busy these days professional juggling <laughs> um, this is about drumming, not juggling. Well, you know, it, in these in these times, you um, you have to do more than one thing. So yeah. I, I'm uh, a majority of my time is with Olivia Newton John. Uh, she has a residency in Vegas at Flamingo. Oh, so this year we did. Uh, I think we'll top out at seventy five dates there. And I think about seventy eight altogether with her. Uh, around the, around the country, and then when I'm not doing that, I'm staff at the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, um, I rotate with Eddie Bears. He does a week, and I do a week, and he does a week. So wow. we just rotate. I took Paul's place when Paul left about five years ago. Okay, and just recording. You know, whenever mm-hmm. the, the phone rings, I, I try not to turn work down. Yeah, um, if if I'm home, I'd much rather be playing than flipping TV channels. So okay. well, sure. Yeah, so. That's really the the main three things going on. I'm I'm trying, you know. My dad was in in the music business, so I'm yeah. trying to eventually kind of incorporate what he did, which was production. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole different world and yeah. a new world. So I'm, you know, baby steps with that. So right, right. Well, um, when you're in Vegas. Do, are you there for a length of time? I mean, a, a block of time, or are you guys going back and forth? It's usually um, well. I got back Sunday from a two-week run. Okay, you know, we'll, we'll fly out on a on a Monday morning, mm-hmm. and then we work from Tuesday through Saturday, and then we're off Sunday and Monday, mm-hmm. and it's one show a day. So I'm there usually uh, a week at a time. But some of the longer runs are two weeks. Or I think in August we did five weeks. So oh wow. So, but um, how does that work with your schedule at the Opry? We Eddie and I cover each other. Yeah, you know, okay. We, we he um, 
we very very rarely had to bring in a third party, but we we most of the time, ninety nine percent of the time, cover each other. Nice. So um, next year will be interesting because uh, as of March we have seven three week runs scheduled out there. So it's about one hundred and five days, and then Japan and and a few other things going on. But so. Hopefully, it will work itself out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm hoping so. That's awesome. What What led to the uh, Olivia Newton-John gig? I, um, How did that come about? I was with a, a, um, a guy named Steve Warner. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we, we were doing just some shows, and uh, one of the days uh, we had a, um, a bass player named Matt McKenzie, mm-hmm. um, and he had also done some Opry shows with us. Um, and then I got an email from him all of a sudden. Uh, apparently, he was really tight with Fitzgerald Hartley, which is Olivia's management, right. and uh, through Patty Loveless and a few other uh, things. And, and they had called him needing a keyboard player and a drummer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sent me an email saying, hey, this is available. Do you want it? Yeah. So uh, unbeknownst to me, it was kind of a trial, uh, not really trial, but a sub-basis. Her guy had gone to Canada to do some other things, and so they needed drums for seven shows yeah and then we did it and everything went great and uh soon after that she had booked uh an australian and a um, southeast asia tour oh wow and they, they wanted to take the same band so okay so at that point i just assumed that i was the guy from there on yeah that was november of 2011 so did you ever find out what do you think it was a sub situation and then maybe they're like, hey, this is let's keep this, yeah, it, going it, or we need a new drummer regardless. Well, I'd always thought it, it was a sub situation until I I just started still getting the call, just still getting the call because after Southeast Asia we didn't work it until for like six months after that, and then we did about thirty five dates around the United States, and they called me for that and. Wow. I did actually catch a little bit of hail from from the her previous drummer about all that, and, <laughs> you know. And it, I, all I could do was because um, he he was extremely helpful to me in in getting with him and getting tempos and yeah, uh, running yeah. tracks and that sort of thing. Yeah. And um, I, you know, I, I did get a, a little bit of a nasty email about that, but I had to go back and say, look, you know, they called me. I'm not stealing a gig here. They want yes, the same band. That's you true. Know, that's yeah, right. Exactly. It, and what are you going to do if you get called to sub? Your job is to go in and do the. You sub for me, and the guys are like, hey, "Mark's great. He does brings all this to the table. He did this on this song. Will you do that too? Oh yeah, sure." And it's like when I call the sub, I want to make sure that the band is not hating me while I'm gone. Right. Right. And they're covering, and that we have a, a history together. We have, um, um, I've proved myself on the gig before. If there's going to be any changes, and and I mean every situation is different, but why would you not go in as a sub and do the best you can, and then leave it to management or the band or the artist to decide what's. I mean, we're here to just do our job. Right, the best we can. And there's yeah. always that underlying thing of, you know, you sub something out, there is a chance you could lose the job. Right. You know? And it's, it is a nasty 
thing about the politics in our business, but oh yeah, you know, um, you know, who are we to say no? I can't do your job because you know this is your guy. Obviously, they might have been unhappy in in, in another maybe situation. So. Yeah. Um, maybe there's a bitterness because this person did this instead of this. It could be a whole slew of things, but right. The whole the whole thing is you you don't you don't still work you just you you go do the job. There's a, you, right right. I think there is an uh, as has been proved time and time again. The drumming community is a great community. It's a strong community. Yes. And there's a lot of support. There is competition. There is that underlying competition that's always prevalent. But I think you have to have a certain amount of faith that we are kind of here all in the same boat mm-hmm. and we're kind of here we're here to support each other for sure uh, especially because of the role that we play in many musical situations right um, we, we all can relate to those kinds of things but well but moving on um, that's that's awesome so you guys are busy with that yeah, and yeah my uh, yeah. my father-in-law is a huge Olivia Newton-John fan oh cool <laughs> he owns every one of her records um, well, she's amazing. She, he should come out and see us, and I get him in. And yeah, does she pl- uh, play in town, or what? Well, actually, they live in they live in Columbus. I, I'd have to ask you about that maybe at some point. Okay. If they play, if she plays much in the states or you know outside of Vegas. Um, you know, we, we got a few dates in Florida. That's as far uh, east as we're coming. Okay. But okay. yeah, it, she, she's loving Vegas. She loves the fact that she can stay in the same bed and the same crew and same everything. Oh so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully it'll last a little bit. So. You guys sleep on the bus in Vegas. You continued enough to get <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, tell me about the. Uh, I like to go back to the beginning, but at the same time, I'm still kind of. Uh, it, you got so many great things that are going on right now. I want to know more about um, what led to the Opry. I, I know you have some history, but what what how did that because I mean gosh Eddie Bears and I mean that's that's heavy duty sharing the seat with him that's, yeah that's really awesome yeah. Ed, Eddie is is the reason I play drums so it's even uh, you know more sweet because of that but, you know he's about the only guy that I would I would love to share that gig with um, see that that happened about six years ago I was there playing with Jamie Johnson yeah and um, I think I had called Eddie as I was pulling into the opera. I don't think he was there that night. And I uh, was just asking questions about how things happened there. And, and you know, I, I may have, I think I even asked, you know, if you ever need me to sub, you know, let me know. Yeah. And his thing was, you know, um, well, there's about three or four people in front of you, but yeah, I'll definitely keep you in mind. And um, probably about six months after that, I got called from him to sub. Yeah. And, um, it was always a situation kind of like how it is with him and me that if he couldn't do it, Paul would do it. Right. But I guess Paul was also working. Yeah. And um, it just it turned into me being there a few times a month, subbing for Eddie and Paul. Mm-hmm. And then after a little while, Paul had called me and, and then basically said, you know, he's been so busy doing other things. And, he, you know, I think he just built a house on a lake or something and he he didn't have any time to go do that and he, he he wanted to spend more time with family and whatever the case that was and then he 
I would just take over his position. Nice. So at at first it was week on, week off with Eddie and I, and then it became two weeks on, two weeks off, and now we're back to the week on, week off schedule. Okay. So settled in. Yeah, and and it it works beautifully. It's it's a pretty well well oiled machine, and and, um, you know ninety nine percent of the time we we cover each other occasionally. And what's involved? I mean, when you're there, I mean, I've played the Opry, but it's I know what I'm doing. I'm playing one or two songs with an artist or something. Um, But what's I mean? How do you guys? prepare for that gig i mean do you play a lot of the same material with some of the same regular opry members um, well usually it's um the what they call the legends which they yeah. are you know anybody from dickens to Jeannie seeley to jan howard um mm-hmm. uh, they will use the staff band and then newer artists will use the staff band and as, okay. as time progresses Newer artists, um, as they're out on the road, they may develop more uh, changes in their songs. So they will start incorporating some of their players to come in and then be like half and half. Okay. And then eventually they will be able to use their entire band. And then, um, and that's usually how that happens. Um, we will get a copy of the song sometimes three days, sometimes the day of. Um, oh, wow. Uh-huh. Uh, you know that night, and um, one of two people usually write charts in the band, and we have a massive iTunes collection and mm-hmm. and a, a huge storage of charts. Mm, wow. So um, you know we'll get to the Opry and we'll um, we'll spend a little time listening and going over making our notes, and sometimes uh, we'll have a run through in the band room, and yeah. then sometimes we don't. We, we'll go out there cold and just play the chart. Yeah. So it it varies. Okay. On, on per artist. But you have to be ready uh, when you get the chart. Is it a numbered like a Nashville number yeah. chart? Yeah. Okay. Always a number chart, and yeah. uh, Larry Paxton or Kerry Marks will write those in their beautiful charts. And but you know, in situations like if it's if Vince is there, you know, Vince Gill, he he uses us, but okay. we never have a run through. We'll go. We'll find out what he's doing, and we'll go cram for it at the at the computer with iTunes. Yeah. And, and go out and play it. And then a lot of the new artists will want to have a run-through. And, and yeah. that's great, too. So Right, right. But it, it is definitely an on-your-toes kind of gig. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's wonderful, and it's, uh, you know, you get to see all kinds of the new artists, the new crop coming up, and sure. it's, it's pretty great to see. So in the, in the speedy amount of, I mean, in the short amount of time that you have to be prepared... Is there a way that you approach the song that might be different than, say, preparing for Olivia's gig? Because I know some artists, and I know you don't have that luxury with the Opry, but sometimes when you work with artists or different bands, um, they want the song just like it is on the record. They want the drum part. They want the fill, the feel. Well, obviously, the feel the same. Um, and some are they're okay with a bit of self-interpretation of that material. Yeah. I'm guessing you have to have that interpretation. You have to have, you have to kind of improvise because you don't have time to chart out every fill and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the Opry, I will generally write out the what the 
drum parts are doing, such as what what he's doing in the verse, if it changes from what he's doing in the chorus. Yeah. If it's a if they're doing a side stick or a snare or what the kick drum pattern's doing, um, I don't generally uh, copy fills. Um, yeah. Now there have been situations when when Hunter Hayes was first starting to come there, he would use the staff band, and there were certain things that he wanted. Uh, certain yeah. parts of his song had to be a certain yeah. way, and and we would just notate them out and play them. Um, because he played the drum part on it, and he wanted you to <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> and then, and, but even artists like Olivia uh, is fine with us taking our interpretation of it. Yeah, uh, um, okay. which is really great. I mean, we want to keep the integrity of the song for sure. But um, you know, uh, she she has told us a few times, you know, make it what you want. You know, nice, yeah, which is wonderful for an artist to say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so wow, yeah. man, it just that's awesome. I, it just amazes me. Uh, I you know I heard an interview with Anton Fig, and they're talking about getting material for uh, performing with different artists on The Late Show and how they get it just the day before, the day of, and how you have to just be on your toes and have the background to be able to write charts, interpret things, and and you getting the number chart, uh, be able to see that and listen and put those things together just by listening to the material not sitting down at the kit, but that's probably the first time you play through it is when you sit down to perform it. Yeah, yeah. well, w- with a kit, yes. I yeah. mean, when we run in, when we run through it with uh, in the band room, you know, yeah. I, I have brushes and I just play brushes on the table. Nice. Yeah. And um, but that's just mainly getting the feel and the tempo how they want it, mm-hmm. and um, so yeah, that's that's, that's awesome. It, yeah, that's awesome. Well. Um, can we go back to the beginning, kind of growing up, and sure. how what yeah. your influences were and what got you started playing? Influences were Eddie Bears, Eddie Bears, and Eddie Bears. Okay, let me write those <laughs> three guys first. Eddie Bears. <laughs> <laughs> my, my guys, um, my influences are are always been session guys. Um, you know, Bears and Jeff Beccaro, Larry London yeah. was a, a massive influence. Did you me. grow up in Nashville? I, I moved here in '85. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned, my dad was in music and yeah. moved us up here in '85. He was in Muscle Shoals, uh, yeah. part of a, a thing called, they called the Swampers. He, um, I think, he moved there in '68, and um, from there to '83, he was involved with a lot of great records from Bob Seger to Bob Dylan to Aretha Franklin and to James Rod Stewart. Those wow. kind of things. And when that area, um, the music scene, music scene seemed to have dried up in around '83, he started commuting here, and then moved our family up in '85. Now, uh, it's your your father's playing piano on uh, old time rock and roll. Well, that is a is that, that is an ongoing debate. Is it? In fact, we had a discussion about it the other day on Facebook, and you know, I don't honestly don't know anymore. Really, there's things that I hear that sound like him and there are other things that I hear that don't sound like him yeah um, so I don't, I don't know you don't know, you know. <laughs> uh, I like to think in the back of my head yeah that's him for sure um, but there are people that will say no nah, that's me or that's this guy or you know there's, there's a lot of confusion there's a lot of drummers that think they played on it you know Roger Hawkins played drums on it but James Stroud also thinks that he played on it and oh uh, I think it's been said Owen Hale might have played on it. Oh wow! 
Yeah, it's yeah. it's all. I wonder if it, if just it was a little bit more loose back then as far as keeping track of who played on what. Like we weren't keeping track of things the way we are now. Maybe. Well, kind of, but it was a situation also where it was a demo. Oh, um, okay. And they added Bob's voice to it. Yeah. So keeping track of that might be more difficult. It, and it actually wasn't actually cut at Muscle Shoals Sound. It was cut at their B room when they were making the transition from uh, the smaller studio to the big studio. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so, yeah, it's, 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 that was a confusing time, you know, I, guess. <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, uh, for sure. So, uh, 83, 85, or things were slowing down in 83? Yeah, and okay. he started to commute up here, and um, he moved the family up in 85. And then um, started making a, a good living doing country music production and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing and um i started drumming in 89 um in in those days you know dad was playing a lot too so he would occasionally bring home some some of the albums he played on Mm -hmm. and one day my brother and i were driving around listening to an album called uh, rodney Crow's diamonds and dirt yeah Mm -hmm. fantastic album and i was just banging on my legs Mm -hmm. you know 14 13 years old and my brother said, you know, you should learn to play drums. And I was like, well, okay. And uh, I'm sure I would have asked who was playing on it, and, and he would have said Eddie. And um, at that point, I had to start learning more about him. And then I met him a few months later at a Fourth of July party that he was throwing yeah. at his house. And uh, I told him I wanted to learn how to play drums. Yeah. And then September 15th, 1989... Uh, he gave me a set of his Simmons Four uh, pads. Really? Yeah, and and they were the old hexagon, the Formica top. Oh you're, my gosh! You're basically playing a countertop. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And uh, he gave me some hardware. I think he gave me a, a crash symbol and some hardware. Um, but I didn't have everything, so I had a, a hi hat stand with no hi hats, and I had a ride stand with no ride symbol. So I played air ride. You know, for a long, long time, oh, and wow. I, I would bang on the side of the hi hat stand, and uh, wow, yeah, yeah, and um, I played that kit for about a year, and then I guess my folks were testing me, yeah, to see if I'd stay with it, and then my dad and Eddie went to Larry London's shop called Dog Percussion, yep, and bought a uh, Pearl Export kit for mm-hmm. me, yeah, and uh, I actually still have that kit, and. and um, yeah, and it was just uh, Eddie and my dad were really instrumental in in me playing. And, uh, you know, my dad would come home from a hard day's work and being in the studio all day, and I'd be, you know, four hours a day, you know, putting records on and, and playing the records. And I think I remember twice, only two times, he said, son, take a break, you know, because, <laughs> you know, he was, right. he was tired. Um, but, yeah, it, I had all kinds of access to a lot of things that other people don't have and I'm so blessed and fortunate in that world that I was able to go to recording sessions and, and watch these yes. these wonderful musicians play yeah and uh, and get to be really tight with Eddie you know Eddie after my dad passed away has really become instrumental even more as a figure in my life you know mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. he, he's really looked out after me a lot yeah that's amazing yeah I mean I, I just the fact that we have our influences and we have people that we've 
a lot of times we don't even get to meet our influences. Yeah. Um, or we're afraid to meet our influences for fear that their personality, personality doesn't fit our own interpretation of of who they are or the pedestal that we put them on. And yet, for you, Eddie sounds like one of the first people that you expressed interest in drums to. Right. You right. know? And he set you... Do you still have the Simmons drums? I do somewhere. Um, they may be in the attic. And, and yeah. oh, you know, one of the funny things is I, I didn't know any better back then. And I, I would, I'd play them like they were normal drums, you know. I, I'd beat the crap. But I would, you know, hey, it's a snare drum. I'm going to play it like a snare drum. Yeah. And um, the formica started to crack. And then you get one crack and then you get another crack. And then right. all of a sudden they start kind of breaking off. And, oh, then there's the plywood underneath. Oh, okay, that's great. Then you start going through the, the plywood. The pl- <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I remember my brother going to a session with, that my dad was doing. Eddie was there. And <clears throat> my brother goes, hey, uh, hey Eddie, uh, you, you, you don't want these back, do you? Because <laughs> they were trashed. I mean, they were completely. And he's like, "Nah, man, I don't, I don't want back." But hey, you, you don't want these back, right? Well, right, yeah, yeah. Because they're, they're completely destroyed. Yeah, if you yeah. do, yeah, you know, we've we, got a problem. Got a problem. Um, I wonder when they stop making uh, Simmons drums. Those things that I mean, oh, well, and the four, for that matter. I mean, it, the four brain actually had a pretty cool thing with white noise. Back then, they were triggering. You know, before their actual sound replacement things started happening um you know a lot of drummers would just trigger white noise on a snare drum just the, the sizzle sound oh yeah 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 so uh, yeah instead of an actual snare replacing another snare and uh oh my God. i actually dug that sound you know uh and simmons really had that figured out how to do that and wow you know uh, and it almost seems like there's a there's a rep there's a love of retro sound and so you hear a lot of those things coming back or mixed into more modern sounds. Uh, I heard a, a, a pretty new record, new artist, the other day, and it just it just sounds like the very first drum machine that ever came on the market. Yeah. And they were using that. They mixed it in part of the song, and it just sounded so cool. Yeah. You know? And yeah. As opposed to, like, the... I don't hear the DX7 coming back anytime no, soon, no. but um, <laughs> and people think vintage. They're thinking like really warm tone oh, I know. sounds uh, from the 60s and 70s, but this is like vintage 80s yeah. stuff, and done in the right way. It was, it's really cool. Yeah. We talk about um, session drummers, uh, Picaro and. And Eddie, of course, um, is that something that you felt like you've always wanted to do with your drumming? Is is mainly stupid? Now you talked about before um, getting into production, um, but I mean, but sticking with drumming, do you see yourself as a session player who plays live? I know you're doing the opera and you're doing, and the, the, the main things that keep you busy, the two of the three, mm-hmm. are performing live, but. Um, do you see yourself as a session player first, or do you... I, I think I just see myself as just a, a working drummer, sort of like yeah. what you said. Um, you know, the the days of... And, and some people would probably disagree, Some people, but I would think most would agree that the days of doing one job in Nashville um, and making a, a decent living at it are gone. You, yeah. know? Mm-hmm. you know, in the 80s and 90s, there was so much work. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And there's still work today, but it's, it's it's different. You have to be a jack of all trades. You have to, you know, be able to do the session work. You have to be able to do the live thing convincingly well, and you mm-hmm. have to be able to to travel some and right. and. Um, but I, I, I think just a working drummer um, would be just doing. Yeah, you're you're playing. It could be live. It could be recording. It could yeah. be whatever. I just but want what the, you're doing. I just want the phone to ring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I will I will do, you know, anything in that in that matter. And you know, if the phone rings to go play a gig downtown, or if the phone rings to go do a session or whatever. If if I'm home and not working, I want to go work. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know, uh, if it's a fifty dollar job, I look at it like, okay, fifty bucks—that's gas in my tank. Um, it's fun with people. It's meeting people. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> if it's not an enjoyable time, okay, it's three hours out of my life. Well, maybe if they call you again next time, you'll know. Yeah, exactly. But, you, but if the opportunity comes up and you don't know beforehand, and you right. have a great time, or you meet, maybe there's the guitar player that knows some. Exactly. It's working with somebody that needs a drummer or a, uh, leads to a session. And, right, right. Yeah, and, sure, and I've, sure. I've actually tried to explain that to some people, and it it just bounces off of them like they don't they don't get the concept of okay, it, it takes some some not so great paying gigs to maybe get to other gigs. Yeah, you know? yeah. Or just you know, not that going out with Steve Warner wasn't a great gig. It was it was a great gig, yeah. um, but. Being able to do that led to, you know, so far 140 shows with Olivia. There you go. So it it's it's hard to explain to people that this can lead to this, can lead to this, can lead to this. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I just I like to play, and and if it's like again to the money thing, if 50 bucks is is groceries, it's gas in my tank. It's sure, you know, sure. But coming from you. That has a lot of weight to it because you're doing all these other things. I mean, you're the counterpart to Eddie Bears on the Opry. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, I'm sorry, man, but if you're telling me that, you know, if you get called for a $50 gig and it's a chance to meet people and play, uh, I'm going to listen to what you're saying. You know, I think it's 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 awesome, man. Um, we talked about what led to these other two gigs. What about session work? I mean, how did that progress um into uh, a full-time thing for you well again it, it gets to a, a situation um having having a family in the music business mm-hmm. um my dad as i mentioned was a record producer and a keyboard player but in the 90s he started a publishing company and um as i was coming up to to learn how to play, yeah. I, I met a guy named Chris Eddy, who is from the famous guitar player family, Dwayne Eddy. He's yeah, his, sure. his son. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we had signed him as a, um artist development uh, songwriter. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, was, he was one of these guys that could play drums and guitar and, and bass and do it really well, convincingly well. Yeah. And one day I was just, I went to my brother, I went with my brother to see one of his sessions. And my brother was kind of wanting to get into production too, I believe, and was working with him. So I I go there and I see see his kid and we're just kind of talking. I say, well, yeah, you know, I'm learning to play drums. I I play a little bit. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the next session he did, 
How old were you at the time? Do you remember? Uh, um, probably fifteen. Okay, pretty young. Yeah, really young. And um, and him and me uh, started doing this thing where he would play one song and I would play one song, and um, we did that arrangement for about six months. And then as he started doing more songs at a session, he would let me play two out of three or three out of three. I think what he was mainly doing was he would play the more difficult one and I would play the the more straight ahead. You yeah. Because I was yeah. really new at it. And and um, we just developed a, a, a very long multi-year uh, relationship of that. Wow. And, and um, as he started wanting to do more of the artist thing around town, he would hire me for gigs. He was actually my first gig in town. Uh, 1994 was my first live gig I ever played was with Chris. Wow. And, um, and we still chat to this day, you know, what, 20, almost 20 years later. And, uh, yeah, 20 years. I mean, we don't hardly work together ever, but, but yeah, that's how it all started. And I guess with a, a publishing company in the family, other writers would, would hear that I play and then they would hire me. Yeah. And then... And what was cool about it is that they didn't have to, you know. I don't know if they felt they had to. They certainly didn't have to, and they certainly didn't need to call me again because I really wasn't any good. I was, I was, I was a kid, you know. I didn't know how to play to a click track. I didn't know how to play well with other musicians, you know. <laughs> and um, but they would still call me back. And then after a little while, I start getting other calls. From other for other sessions from yeah. musicians that I guess liked me yeah. that day or they couldn't get their guy so well let's call this guy yeah and uh, it just became you know a little more and more every month a little more and more every year yeah and it's just it's just a building process sure you know, sure but from the very beginning when you were fifteen you were you had some experience recording it, yeah a little bit and and I mean. Literally four hours a day, three or four hours a day, I would be playing the records and learning how to play to a click track and learning, yeah. uh, you know. Was there anything special you did when you were learning to play to a click track? I mean, because I know that um, I mean, playing along with records is kind of a, has always been a universal thing, but a lot of times uh, playing, learning to play to a click or practicing to a click is, a, I guess, a less fun, can be a more tedious task. But so essential, yeah, um, the development of of, of playing. Yeah, uh, it you know in those days the drum machine I had was an HR sixteen B, which was an Alesis big square thing, and, mm-hmm. and what was cool about it is that you could program and it would feel good. You know, the, the feel oh. of the drum machine had a had a cool thing, and you you could you could program uh, percussion loops even in those days, and you could tune them, and you could. You know, do all kinds of <clears throat> cool patterns, and uh, that's what I did as as a click track. I would program a shaker pattern instead of a, a hard or, or or a softer kind of conga sound with a shaker. Yeah, and I would sure. pretend like it was another player playing with me yes. instead of me to it. Yes, and when the advent of the Pro Tools click came into play, you know, uh-huh. however long ago that was, I had a hard time. Adjusting to that, I, I don't know if it was how the point of the sound was different or one of the sounds they use on Pro Tools has that. It's almost 
area that oh yeah yeah and there's no center of of where to to lock into it's, it so it's it's very unmusical it's very yeah and even the little the clave sound is isn't musical there are no real musical click track sounds ever but <laughs> um, but i i had a hard time for a few months adjusting to that and then all of a sudden something clicked in my head and i was able to the click clicked the click clicked nice. um what do you do now? I mean, as far I don't want to jump too far ahead because I, I I love the idea that you're creating something musical to play along with, something musical. But the time element is solid. It's digital. It's there. It's going to put you in the in place to to be able to keep solid time. Um, but I and I use that as well. And, but I also sometimes I'll just make sure that I practice to the most sterile click that I can find on my drum machine just so I'm comfortable with that, I'm used to that. Um, knowing that I don't always have that option to put all the, you know, different micro elements to to the to a groove or to a click groove or whatever. Yeah. Um, but what do you do now? Or are you just so comfortable that it doesn't matter depending on who's engineering and what studio? I'm I'm pretty comfortable um, if the engineer's running it. I used to not be, but I, I am now. If I'm running the click, I usually just have a, a muted conga sound and, and a shaker. Depending How often the, are you running the click these days? N- not very often. I was going to say, not it just seems often. like more and more the engineer is doing yeah. it. Yeah, okay, yeah. Sure. And, and that's fine. It's one less thing to right. worry about bringing in and, right. and leaving it at the studio and losing it. Um, but a, another thing is I listen really loud to a click. So mm-hmm. I think if I'm running the click and I have the muted conga sound, which is a little more comfortable, and I can have it at a louder volume, anybody else in the band isn't, wanna, isn't gonna wanna hear that. Mm-hmm. So they're gonna have it at a lower volume and it's gonna blend in better. And if it blends in better, maybe they'll listen to me a little more than, yes. than the click. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, the advent of everything being on the grid, I'm not a fan of. I'm not a fan of uh, music being <clears throat> more seen than heard now. Yes, yeah, um, sure. You know, I, I just grew up in a different time. You mm-hmm, know, of mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you go, you you listen to a click, you make it groove as good as you can, mm-hmm. and if it's not right, you punch it. You don't move it. <laughs> right, right. Because even if you move it, and I, I, I've gone through this a lot, a lot of times. If you move the beat, it still doesn't feel like somebody went and played it you know when you say move the beat you mean like take the whole drum track and bumping it yeah like okay say you know say you're listening to a track and and, and this is just speaking for me sure know, this is sure. not speaking for other people but well Mark you are <laughs> yeah, the that, guest today uh, no. <laughs> speaking, speaking for me um, <laughs> if I'm listening and I don't like how snare drum laid you know if it was late or, or whatever yeah I would rather go and punch it Oh, yes. and, and just punch the whole track instead of spending however many minutes, okay, adjusting it. Now, are you, are you talking about one snare hit, or are you talking about... One snare One snare hit. hit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And punching that section, you'd rather perform I, it? I'd rather perform it, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Nice. It, it's, just, it's just one of my quirky things, because no matter what the engineer may do, it's just not going to sound right to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's sure. not going to feel right. Sure, yeah. sure. And are they? Uh, well, I guess it depends on who you're working with. But I mean, if the, if you have your choice, say, look, I'd like I'd rather punch this. Or are guys like, okay, cool, 
or uh, like, yeah, yeah. No, or no, no, this is how we do it now. Oh no, 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 no! They'll, they're usually cool. Yeah, because they they can punch it. They can punch however much they want, and then shrink in on that exactly. one thing. Exactly. And even though it's in theory the same thing, it, mm-hmm. you're still going and performing it and and mm-hmm. making it mm-hmm. a human being playing it instead sure. of. Sure. You know, what kind of sessions are you doing? Is it what is there a range of different kinds of things? Uh, yeah. Demo masters, country, other kinds of music. It's it's a little bit of everything. Um, today uh, I've got a, a two and a six that are are demos. Um, uh-huh. Yesterday was a, a all day of a, a custom project, um, a kind of a bluesy custom album project. Uh-huh. Um, you know. It's just all kinds of things, really. Sure. It's just um, some are one or two song, um, again, little custom project demos, or mm-hmm. then um, some records here and there. You know, it's just, nice. it's just whatever it calls, you know. And what are you showing up with uh, when you, like, not knowing? You may have some idea of what the gig is going to be before, and you know what yesterday was a custom blues project, uh, and today is something completely different. Is your setup any different yesterday than it is today? No, no? I, I usually the, the only thing that changes is snare drums. Uh huh. And and I used to be one of these guys that that had to have as many snare drums possible to a session. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've just wanted to. I'd rather have one snare drum that can do what three or four can do. Yes. Than to have four or five snare drums, you know, to carry in. Yeah. You know. Or to have other people. And Car- I'm sure Carnish loves that too. You know, <laughs> instead of having to carry 50 snare drums in, yeah. you know, let's carry four or five in. Yeah. Um, cymbals always stay the same. Um, so yeah, just really snare drums. There are so many house kits in sessions nowadays. Yes. And which is kind of a drag. Um, so I don't have to have much stuff brought or mm-hmm. or bring things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'll generally have. Four or five snare drums in my car. I always keep stuff in my trunk. Mm-hmm. So for people that are listening, to this can come rob a house. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. one thing that we haven't really gotten into in the different podcasts that we've done so far is we we haven't really geeked out on gear. Uh, I I I think that <clears throat> that's kind of part of my personality. I mean, I like good gear and mm-hmm. uh, you know good great sounding stuff, but I. I'm so much more interested in the player. Yeah, yeah. But speaking of gear, I guess going through who you are and why you chose it, I am curious, though, what snare drums you use. If you're going to bring in three or four as opposed to 15, what are those drums? What is that one drum that you use that that gives you three or four different sounds? Well, um, there's a guy... Uh, well, first off, the, the drum company that I'm with is Mapex, and uh-huh. I've been with them since 2011, and, and I just love what they're doing. You know, I, they they seem to have revamped a few things and brought some new kits in, like the the Velvetone kit, and um, which is my cartridge rig is a Velvetone kit. Yeah, and um, another kit that I have that is my all-time favorite drums. That I mean, the the best drums I've ever played is a Saturn SE kit, which they only did for a few years. <clears throat> but instead of the maple walnut combination, it was birch and walnut, oh, which wow. I love birch drums. Not a fan of birch kick drums, but yeah. so they, they did a maple kick for me. But the birch and the walnut hybrid 
it's just it's an awesome thing it's the yeah. drums I hear in my, I've always heard in my head yeah so um, so those are my main uh, session rigs um, as far as snare drums you know some of the Mapex snare drums are great um, you know the um, I have a walnut prototype that is my main session snare drum it's a five and a half fourteen walnut uh, Mapex prototype um, there's a guy in Wisconsin named Jim Byer that has made me a few steel drums. His main thing, he he mainly does one kind of metal, one kind of size, and he is slowly, uh, you know, making more sizes. But Mm -hmm. his main thing was a five and a half by 14 steel shell. Mm -hmm. He's slowly developing, developing into five and a half by 15s, six and a half by 14s, six and a half by 15s. And, he just does amazing, amazing snare drums, and it's your it's your basic meat and potatoes. Nothing too amazingly different about it. It's just how he puts it together, yeah. and and all the materials. And uh, so, I have a five and a half by fourteen, and he made a four by fifteen for me. Oh wow! And uh, they're just amazing snare drums. So those are my three favorites. Yeah. That I that I play a lot. Um I have an old Black Beauty that's uh, another go to yeah. for the mud, the the ballad snare drums. Is it a six and a half? It's six and a half. Okay. Yeah. And um I really like that drum. You know, I've I've got twenty five snare drums I think and I could probably get rid of all of them and keep <laughs> those four. Well if you need a place to store them. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um I- are you making the decisions for snare drums for different songs and different... I mean, do you find that, uh, okay, this is the snare drum, and you're making the decision, not the producer or not the engineer? Um, um, 99% of the time, I will start with something, and yeah. if they don't like it, I'll change. You know, it's yeah, just, sure. Um, sometimes, uh, depending... You know, it always depends on the song, but sometimes certain songs will scream... Uh, well, this needs to be a fat back. This needs to be the mud. Mm-hmm. But then you start think, thinking, well, what if it wasn't the mud? What if it was a crack kind of thing? What mm-hmm. if it was a, a slamming thing? And just to be different. Mm-hmm. And then I'll ask what their thoughts are. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm always about you know trying to please people. You know, sure, and, right. Well, that's your. I mean, you're offering a service you're right. there it's not right. your name on the front of the record exactly it's exactly. you're there yeah uh, um that seems to be a common theme among uh players that are working full-time they're uh there to serve and to take direction still add their voice right. you've been hired or not hired because of what you do right and so if you're there they trust you to do your thing, but at the same time, uh, being able to uh, being able to have uh, the type of attitude that people can work with, I'm sure is a big, well, it's a big that, deal. It, it's that, and it's it's also relationships. It's you know, years ago I was so shy with with people, with musicians mm-hmm. and with uh, producers or writers that you know. And it probably hurt me being as shy as I was because, you know, I was the guy that hung out in the drum room and didn't go hang out with people in the lounge mm-hmm. or um, spend extra time with 
writers or producers trying to Well, that's to get. great. I mean, well, so how has that changed and, 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 and what advice would you have for people as far as maybe that were in that same position? Well, I, I don't know what changed it for me. I, I think maybe I just got more comfortable with what I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I, I might have just woke up one day going, you know what, I'm going to be different this time. Or maybe I just I started looking at people as my peer instead of necessarily above what I'm doing. Yes. Um, because, you know, they are your peers and they are your your your, your level playing field. And they're, in a lot of cases, your friends. And I think I just woke up one day. It's like, you know, these people are my friends. I can sit and have a conversation with them. Yes. Yeah, yeah and, for sure. Uh, so, I, but there is a fine line between uh, being friends with people and then... Uh, being overly involved. Hmm. Um, what do you mean? Well, there's there's some situations where you know sometimes some situations I've been in where a musician may step out of bounds. In my in my opinion, hmm. on okay, you're not the leader of the session, but you have taken that role, mm-hmm. and that's not right. Mm-hmm. Being in a, in a session where, you know, the guy may go, you know, may talk down to the band, you know, um, I, that's just, it's, it's just an uncomfortable And you're just, you're not agreeing with how the person is handling the situation, but... Right, you know... So how do you handle it? I mean, do you feel like, I'm going to st- I'm going to let this play out? Oh, well, yeah, I, I'm a hired gun, I, you know. Yeah. I, in those cases, I feel bad for the actual session leader, um... But you know there there are people out there that have made um, enemies in in overstepping their bounds as, uh, as players. Yeah. So, um, but there's also um, the fine line of of trying to overly please. You know, because you eventually have to walk away. You know, you you know you're trying to get in a demo world. You're trying to get five songs in a session. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's, you know, it breaks down to what, 45 minutes a song? Yes. 35 minutes a song? Yeah. So, you know, you have to be able to walk away from a performance. You, you can't be going, well, you know, I really don't like how I played that bridge. Can we punch the bridge? And, you know, you, you, you have to be able to let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Yeah, okay. You know? Because in, in most cases, it's just in your head what's bothering you. You know, if something's bothering them, they'll let you know. Yeah. So, a lot of younger guys coming up probably don't understand the fact that okay, it's it's quality and quantity, and in, in, especially in demo world. Yes, yes, um, that's a good point. You know, they they want their five songs more than they want you to be pleased about how you perform the bridge. You know, yeah. it's kind of like that. It, well, and that's a good point because I, I know there's times that I've done things, and I, and of course I'm listening to it from the drummers per se I'm listening to every single note and if I have there's a snare drum that's late or something that's just bugging the crap out of me and I'm like man that part and the engine is dude it's okay it's fine it's fine and I walk away not the way you're saying but I'm literally leaving the session thinking oh that sucked and I'm thinking about that one note or I'm thinking about that like you say that bridge and yet, in the big picture, it's okay. And then, when of course, if I hear it later or they come, you know, then I'm just like, okay, it really wasn't that bad. Yeah, uh, another day will 
when you have different ears on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a great phrase that a lot of people don't understand is the phrase of okay. You know, it happened yesterday. Um, I, I don't know what I did or, or, or somebody, uh, I don't know what I was trying to do. And um, I wanted to hear something back. And I listened back. It was it was okay. And I said that's fine. And I walked away. You know, I, I gave it its due time. And I'm thinking what they're going to add later on to it is it's anything that might have been theoretically wrong will probably be covered up anyway. Or asking somebody what they think about if that bothers them, they say no, it's okay. Walk away. You wow. know, let yeah. let them. But yesterday wasn't a demo. I mean, it was an it was a project, but. Right. right, right. It was a project, but, but we still needed to do ten songs in in a day. So. But <laughs> it was um, a project on a budget. Yeah, <laughs> it was. But you know, let the people do their job too. You know, let the producers and the writers do their job. You know, because they know what they like, what they don't like. Mm-hmm. If it bothers them, they'll they'll be the first to tell you. And one of the things that I struggle with, and maybe this is good. This is kind of more conversation between you and I, getting your advice is that um, I sometimes do have a hard time walking away. Eventually, you know, you just do. You have to, you know. And you don't want to be crazy about it because you want to be helpful and uh, you want to be easy to work with. So you do have to make that decision at some point to say, okay, it's in your hands. Whoever's in charge or the engineer or the producer or the artist at hand, yes, fine. Whatever you want, whatever you need, this is yours. I've performed for you. You own it. You own my performance as far. But it's my name in the credits, and I want other people to hear it and know that. But it is what it is. So, I mean, how how do I deal with that? Well, you know, you also got to think of these two other things, too. Is One, it's feel. It's drum feel. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And then two is... You never want to bring too much attention to yourself, um, mm. especially if it's in a negative context. Hey, I might have done this wrong. Mm. You know, l- let them mm-hmm. hear it, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, right, right. Let them hear it and bring attention to it. And if it's something that needs to be fixed, then you go fix it. Because right. you're, you're there also to do a performance, and right. you're working for them. True. Um, so... So we're our own worst critics, exactly. always. Oh, always. And so we're going to hear those things and I'm on a minutia scale, more so than anyone else is going to. Right. Yeah, right. I understand. And it's understand. it's also, you know, we're playing for the song, and it's, it's, yeah. it's feel. So if it's a little late or a little early, who are we to necessarily say it's wrong? Yeah, you know? sure. You know, sure. how many records have we heard in the past where before everything was on a grid and everything yeah. was micromanaged to y- yes you know yeah yeah how many things when it was the glorious of the, the the wonderful glorious days of wow that snare drum moved a little bit and it wasn't yeah. quite you know or listen to the tempo of honky tonk woman at the beginning and yeah. then at the end oh yeah and i never gave it a second thought i'm like that is so cool there's stuff going on there's oh, music happening i, I mean granted we're talking about the stones here which is well, yeah, yeah. but at the same time and and I've always wanted to be the, the kind of drummer that will, you know, you play to a click, yeah, but you also move around a click, and you're also playing to a singer, and you, mm. the singer is the boss over mm-hmm. anything, mm-hmm. and you want to groove with the singer. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. want to move around that. 
just a product of me being uh, an '80s lover. I love. It's probably the gated, Simmons drums. I love <laughs> gated drum sounds. Okay. I like a short reverb, or if I hit the snare, you hear the verb and it's gone. Mm-hmm. I don't like dry drums, and I don't like overly reverbed out drums. I just like that weird in the middle kind of thing. Not quite to the point of Phil Collins, but nothing wrong with that. But it's a great sound, man. And, yeah. and my favorite drum sounds were the late '80s, early '90s, when you could hear the verb, and it was just enough to where it didn't overly soak up everything. Uh-huh. But you could hear the drum mm-hmm. and hear the trail off a little bit. Cool. So cool. I try to get engineers to do that, and some of them look at me like I'm crazy. Because <laughs> I don't like room sounds. Um, I, I don't like an overly large. You know, bombastic room. Mm-hmm. I would rather, and I'm probably gonna get smacked for this, but I like a processed verb uh-huh. more than a room, more than a real room. And do you feel like uh, are engineers accom- generally accommodating you with those oh, yeah. different types yeah, of they, things? Yeah, they just look at me weird sometimes. Yeah, because you know, okay. it's just a, it's a different time nowadays. Yeah, um, sure. So yeah, but as far as levels of mix, like you say, okay, I'm going to put a little bit more of this, or does it vary depending on the session? Because I know there's times that sometimes I'll pick out uh, one of the players and say, okay, this acoustic player has great time, and I want to make sure that my hi hat is lined up with what he's doing. Yeah, um, um, or is there something like ever that ever comes about where you're like, this is always a general rule for me where I get. The bass player here, and the guitar player here, and the singer here, as far as level. No, I, I you know, if it's ever like an eight-channel box, which a lot of studios still have, um, I generally like a healthy two-mix, and, uh-huh. and the click loud. Mm-hmm. And then I don't generally boost up anybody, because if it's a good two-mix, you can, you can hear everything. Mm-hmm. If there's ever a question of that, uh, the acoustic guitar... I have to lock in with that. Mm-hmm. And that's an old thing my dad used to tell me to do. He's, he says if the, the acoustic guitar and the hi-hat are the feel of the record. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the center of, the, of everything. You know, he, he used to tell me about drum formulas and what certain drummers do and certain drummers don't do. Yeah. You know, um, in, in context of a song. And, and um, when he told me that, it was like, Oh well, that's. But that makes perfect sense, and and I don't know where I heard that, but that always, I've kind of adopted that rule as well because I don't know if it's the frequency, but or maybe it was just over time. If you do a session and you hear the hi hat and the acoustic guitar not together, how awful it's that awful. sounds! It's awful. And so if you can make those happen, and it's just the fact that your father had mentioned that that's well, has a bit of reinforcement. He he um. One day, I, I really wanted to work for him a lot more um, growing up. You know, mm-hmm. I think I got to work for him about six times. And, uh, you know, when I was a lot younger, I said, you know, I was getting frustrated. And I wanted to know. And I think that day I, I might have played him something that Shannon had played on, Shannon Forrest. Uh-huh. And he loved it. Yeah. And, and I was like, okay, what is it about these people, these particular drummers, you know, Mm -hmm. Shannon and Eddie and Larry and Mm -hmm. and Jeffrey and all Mm -hmm. those guys that you love so much. Yeah. And he said that they follow a particular formula that he likes, which it's really this way or that way. There's there's really no in-between on these two formulas. And, 
you have the the Eddie formula, the Eddie Jeff Shannon kind of thing, which where their downbeat would lay is always laid back, mm-hmm. and their snare drum is generally right on. Then beat three is right on, and then beat four and beat one again are both laid back. Wow! You know, you you listen to like if you're playing and you hit a diamond, one, two, three. You want to, you want to just wait to that very last minute on beat four to uh-huh. come back in. Uh-huh. One, two, one, two, one, two, three. One. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, so that formula of of how they all lay was what he loved, and yeah. it would all be around the hi hat. The hi hat would never move, yeah. and certain parts of the song, the formula would move proportionately. Like the intro would feel good in a certain spot, the verse would feel good in a certain spot, the chorus, and so on. Yeah, you know? yeah. He would always say, "Don't lay back the second verse." He said, "Always keep the second verse as exciting in this formula as." The uh, the first chorus, don't lay back. That was an, an issue he had with Larry London. Larry would always bring back the second verse, uh-huh. you know, yes. feel wise. Yes. And Dad always, you know, would be, you know, keep it as exciting. Yeah. And then he would say, push the solo and push the bridge even more. Yeah. And um, the opposite of that formula is the Al Jackson way of playing. Mm-hmm. Al Jackson, Russ Kunkel. Yes. Um, where your downbeat is pushed and your backbeat is laid back. Yes. And I remember him telling me something where he had to play with Al one day and uh, he had to adjust how he would feel, you know, playing keyboards. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think of what record it was. It may have been Rod Stewart or something, but but he, yeah, he just had to adjust. And and now that I know that formula. I, I can I can hear it plain as day. I can hear where the backbeats are and, and yeah. laid back beat fours. You know. Yeah, I've never heard that's so great, man. Well, I I, I worked for Cropper a few times, and uh, he was really after me about Steve Cropper. Yeah, uh, he was really after me about kind of changing how I was playing to sound more like Al. Mm. And. In, the, in my mind, I'm going, oh, oh boy, uh, that's so against what my dad told me. <laughs> yeah. So, but, were, but did you were you able to make those adjustments? Yeah, you just yeah. you just make little minor adjustment yeah. adjustments, yeah. and um, but I just thought it was so funny that he picked up on it that I of the other formula, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. it was just like, yeah, I need you to play more like what I would do. I'm like, oh. Okay. Is there a way to practice that kind of thing? I mean, uh, I, I think just... you're born with it more than anything. I, you yeah. know, I think you're born with it and then you can adjust it yeah. in, in minor increments. But As long as you have an understanding of it first and foremost. Yeah, you, you have to know it's there. Yeah. Once you know it's there, you know, you put on any Jeff Picaro stuff or, mm-hmm. or, or, Eddie th- or Eddie in particular is yeah. genius at it. But so is Jeff. You know, you listen to it, and now that you know it's there, it's going to hit you every time you hear it. I'm going to go get some records out when we're done. Maybe listen to this. Yeah, and and, and then you hear, <clears throat> then you hear the opposite of Al and and Russ Kunkel. Yes, Russ is is way different about how he lays back that beat too. Back. Russ is one of those guys I've listened to a lot of. I I think I'm more in that category for sure. Yeah, and there's there's nothing wrong with either one. It's just mm-hmm. how drummers are, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, John Robinson is another one of these guys that claims he he always puts 
um, the downbeat right on the beat. And I don't know. I mean, I've heard many John Robinson things where he uh, he lays back the downbeat. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just that's hard to say. I don't know. Yeah, that's great, dude. That's a lot of really cool information. Yeah. It is. Um, one last thing I want to ask about. Um, mm-hmm. So I know you got a session to get to. Um, you talked about kind of breaking out of your shell and being, you know, at some point being shy and then seeing the people you work with as your peers mm-hmm. and as your friends. And I don't really know how to, how to approach this, uh, um, but it seems to me, and something that I struggle with as well, that for so many years... And I think your perspective is unique because of your father being uh, who he was and and to you in the music industry and everything. Um, We grow up seeing our heroes and people that inspire us, and and, uh, uh, they're always older than us. They're always... um, better than us when we're when we're young and then as we get into the professional world you realize that um you're working at their level but how do you make that transition from these guys are still my heroes eddie was such a big inspiration but you're but again you're sharing the same gig with him you're doing the same gig with him even when i was living in columbus i was doing some of the same gigs as some of the drummers in town that were my heroes, that were just incredible players, and and still so much better than I was, but we were doing the same gig. To me, it's like I had to break out. I had to get someplace where I wanted to be in the same world as these guys. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I'm trying to figure out... Was there something... Was there a revelation you had, like... Was it you? Just, was a confidence in your playing? I mean, I know we're always growing, we're always learning new things. Yeah, I, you know, I I don't think it's up to us to really determine who's as good as the next guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I my my heroes. You know, I in my mind, I will never be able to touch um, because they are they are individuals, and they're always going to be on a, on. A, on a level in my mind that I'll never get to, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are things I've seen Eddie do that blow my mind mm-hmm. and, and sounds that he comes up with. And, you know, I'll go and have the same snare drum or something similar and it won't even be close. Mm-hmm. And I'll go watch him at the Opry and I'll just watch his feel. Mm-hmm. And, and he's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, and same for, Jeff and and Larry and Gad and all those guys, there there are things that they do that you can learn how to do, mm-hmm. but because of their individuality, I'll never be able to touch what they are. Right. I just have to do what I do. Yes. And try and make a living and try and and make people happy with what I do. Yes. And which you have. Which you well, have. let's yeah. hope so. You're doing. <laughs> continuing on. And, sure. and and then hopefully you know. Ten years down the road, somebody will will say the same thing about me or or you. You know, yeah, sure. you know, they see you play. I got to be like that. Um. So there there really was no transition. I just I know I will never be able to touch the guys, my heroes. Mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. But would you say that um, 
those heroes and those guys you listen to were an influence on you in a, such a positive way that uh, it's, it's helped you become the player you are now and uh, you get hired and you get work for what you do and how you sound. Mm-hmm. And we're always the best when we do what we do. If you try to be a clone of Gag or Russ Kunkel or whoever, yeah, yeah. you're going to be a weaker version of that person. Well, <laughs> you know. yeah, my thing is I've tried to take bits of my favorites uh-huh. and, uh, and make my own thing. Mm-hmm. I've, I've tried to... You know, my top three that I, that I listened to growing up were Eddie, Jeff, and Larry. Those were mm-hmm. my three guys. Roger Hawkins was another great one, but Larry Curly and Mo. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but in, in those days, when I when I, my dad was with Roger Hawkins a lot, I wasn't playing drums, so mm. I, I didn't pay as much attention to him as mm-hmm. I should have. Sure. Um, but you know, I, I try to borrow from each one. You know, I, I'll, I'll be playing sometimes, and I'll. You know, I'll be stealing from Jeff Beccaro every single chance I can. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll I'll hold my hands a certain way, or I'll try and tune a snare drum a certain way, and then, or I may try to have the the brawn and the uh, the excitement that Larry London would have on mm-hmm. a track. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll steal drum fills from Eddie Bears a hundred times a day if I can. You know, <laughs> coming up, I mean, literally coming up, I, I would. I would go to recording sessions. I would sit behind him without headphones on and just watch him. I would just wow. have a chair yeah. and um and and watch and and for hours. And my dad my dad was so cool in the sense that he would he would bring home copies of stuff that he did that day, whether it be track roughs or whatever, and I would he'd give me a copy and I would go put that on and play for hours. Wow. And then during the mixing Yeah. He would bring home a copy of the mix without drums. Oh. He would he would bring, and I wish I could find them. I can't find them anywhere. Oh, but man. he would he would have the the mix with a click track, or he would have the mix without drums or a click. Oh, wow! And um, I know those tools are available more now than yeah. they used to be, but that's what a what a. But he, gift. he would he would bring a, a mix with the click and with drums, and I could hear. How the drummer, which was always Eddie, would would swim around the click yeah. with the singer. Yeah. Man, I mean, and I've I've still got a whole bunch of track roughs and, and things. I need to transfer to CDs, and yeah. they're all deteriorating. I need to get on that, but but that's so nice to be able to because to get an inside and kind of hear how why that works. Yeah, and you know, wow, that's so great. Yeah, yeah. He, he was he was really great to me my dad that's that's great man that's awesome Mark thanks so much man I appreciate it (laughs) if there's anything you want to add to it I feel like we've covered so much and uh, I mean I think we've got a lot of you and your history and what you're doing but there's so much cool information too that I think anybody listening to this is going to be like oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, man. This, yeah. was, this was a lot of fun. Cool. cool. I'll have to I'll keep you posted on things. Now I appreciate you well, thank a you. lot. Man. Thank you.